This is hell. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And that virus of capitalism infects every part of our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. And if you're like me, you don't want to admit it because of a feeling of being trapped in a world that is cruel, abusive, exploitative, and one that incentivizes hate over love and competition over cooperation. And yet I depend upon it because it's the only way to have access to the resources needed to survive. That virus from which the market benefits while the people and planet suffer even infects what we hold nearest and dearest to our hearts. Yes, it corrupts even our family, which as our guest today argues, is a strict and limited social structure and one that capitalism depends upon. Under capitalism in particular, neoliberalism, our personal relations are perverted by market relations and a commodification of each family member. It makes sense when our capital culture idealizes the family through a privileged prism that obscures the outcome of inequality and many other human and social relationships that exist outside of white supremacy. Keeping in mind that abolition does not always mean destruction, that it can embrace transformation, and in today's topic's case, even expansion of loving care for all. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with M. E. O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care. M. E. writes on gender and communist theory, as well as gender freedom and capitalism. She co-edits two magazines, Pinko on Gay Communism and Parapraxis on Psychoanalytic Theory and Politics. You can follow Pinko on Twitter at Pinko Magazine and find out more at Pinko.online. Find Parapraxis online at thepsychosocialfoundation.org and on Twitter at PsychosocialFO followed by the number one. M.E.'s work on family abolition has been translated into Chinese, German, Greek, French, Spanish, and Turkish. She's also co-author of last year's speculative novel, Everything for Everyone in Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. Her writing has been published by Work, Employment, and Society, Social Movement Studies, Endnotes, Hominturn, Homan turn, sorry, uh, commune and invert. Previously, Emmy coordinated the New York City Trans Oral History Project and worked in HIV and AIDS activism and services. She completed a PhD at NYU where she wrote on how capitalism shaped New York City LGBTQ social movements. She tweets at Gender Horizon. Find out more about Emmy at GenderHorizon.com and become a Patreon patron of M.E. O'Brien's work. Show your support by going to patreon.com slash M.E. O'Brien. That's R-I-E-N. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Kat Jarvanen. Kat, how was your weekend? Hey, Chuck. Uh, my weekend was pretty good. I went to... Um a documentary film screening at the Intuit Gallery. Um, what was the documentary? It's called This World Is Not My Own. It's about uh, an artist named Nellie Mae Rowe, who uh, grew up in around Atlanta, I guess somewhere in Georgia, but uh, sort of like a self-taught, for lack of a better term, outsider artist. 
uh, just a film sort of about her life's work and how it came to be recognized as she was in her older age. Like the kind of naive artwork that you see at Inuit, Intuit, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So right in the same vein as that. Very cool. What's the name of the movie again? That sounds really familiar to me for whatever reason. Um, it's called This World Is Not My Own. Okay. Yeah, it was part of, a lot of it was animated, which was really cool, um, based on conversations that the artist had had with um, a curator who uh, she became very close with. I think the reason I know about it is because of the animation part of it, because I think somebody was telling me about this the other day. So the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party celebrating 27 years of being on air at our home station, WNUR, 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment. That's happening this Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. It's the bar with the tuk-tuk out front facing east with a painting of a flying flaming eyeball on one side and a skull and a portrait of J.R. Bob Dobbs of the Church of the Subgenius on the back. It's kind of hard to miss. The world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell has been happening every Saturday morning on WNUR since July 20th, 1996. And if that's how you are listening to the show right now, First, thanks for your years of support for WNUR, and this is hell. And second, we will be showing our appreciation for your support this Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. and running all day and deep into the night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. There will be three musical performances at the bar downstairs, and the opening of the art show, This Is Art, is going to be taking place up here in Second Story Studios above the bar. As always, we will have a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes donated by listeners, and a whole lot more is going to be going on. Following our conversation with M.E. on Family Abolition, we will tell you who will be playing music during the party. Later this week, we'll be announcing the artists in the show, as well as revealing the prizes that will be offered during the raffle. Kat, will you be joining us this week at the party? Yes, I'm going to try to make it. Excellent. Uh, This is the first year we are throwing the party in July, near the date we originally aired on uh, our very first This Is Hell. Uh, This is the first one that we're going to have a party in July since 2019. We skipped 2020 and 2021 altogether because of COVID-19. We then had to delay last year's party because in July a year ago, I was still very much recuperating from what proved to be life-saving surgery. So we delayed it until September. And what I forgot about having the party on the date that is closest to the first date we aired is how busy and how hectic my life becomes. Because my annual two-week family vacation starts shortly after the party, like eight days afterwards. So not only do I have to get ready for the party, but I have to prepare for a two-week vacation, all while putting out new shows. And this year, throwing one last surgery late last month that kept me from being here for a couple weeks and has left me in a pretty weakened state. So carrying all our two weeks of stuff down three flights of stairs to our car is a nightmare that awaits me. In other words, more than ever, I'm going to really need an actual vacation. Cat, more importantly than my living nightmare that will thankfully and happily be interrupted by this Saturday's party and my upcoming vacation, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is what's the most newsworthy thing that will happen at Saturday's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party? We will share your answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with M.E. O'Brien on love and care. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Kat has this week's hangover cure. 
This week's hangover cure is cantaloupe. <laughs> Forbes, yes, that's Forbes, ran a story in late June headlined, How to Cure a Hangover, Expert-Backed Tips, by Kimberly Don Newman and medically reviewed by Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine, Niraj Patel. Family medicine physician, Bak Nugen, is quoted saying, quote, alcohol, ethanol, is quite a potent diuretic and excessive consumption often leads to dehydration and metabolic imbalances. In simplest terms, a hangover is alcohol-induced physiologic exhaustion in many ways similar to that to heat exhaustion. Hmm. Sally K. Norton, a nutrition expert and author of Toxic Superfoods, says, in addition to being a diuretic, meaning it causes you to urinate more frequently and blocking the release of vasopressin, a hormone that helps your body hold on to water, alcohol also affects the functioning of the hypothalamus, a region of the brain that regulates thirst. Forbes explains, dehydration can also worsen if your hangover symptoms include nausea and vomiting or diarrhea. If that's the case, tiny sips of water or even just ice chips, if that's all that can be tolerated, can help start to restore the body's equilibrium. If you're able to keep down more, Forbes offers a few options, including cantaloupe. Cantaloupe contains high water content, which can help rehydrate the body and combat dehydration, says Norton. It also provides vitamins and minerals such as vitamin C and potassium, which can support overall health and replenish nutrients that may be depleted after alcohol consumption. That makes this week's hangover cure cantaloupe. I like how it's uh, very similar to heat exhaustion because you've ever tried to drink in the heat, in the sun. Oh, yeah. It's It's, brutal. Yeah, it's rough. It's really rough. So no wonder it's awful. It's just like heat exhaustion. So it's like you're getting heat exhaustion twice coming up. Why more love and care can be found without the traditional family? Cat has some of your answers to uh, to this week's question from hell. We will have the return of Dr. Sebastian Vuper, a historian by trade, who will give us another past inside the present when Seb, Seb, Seb gives us the uh, historical context we need to better understand what is happening right now. Cat, what is Sebastian talking about this week? Seb asks, what's the deal with getting an education in one's history? And is it bad to learn about bad things one's ancestors did to others? That's an interesting point. Uh, We'll also tell you what we will be discussing on the rest of this week's shows and who our guests will be, as well as, like I was saying earlier, announcing the musicians playing at this Saturday's July 22nd. This is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party happening at Chicago's Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S Lounge, at 2251 West Devon Avenue in the Westridge neighborhood. You can find out more about Carrie's at carrieslounge.com. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell. And that's a real problem for what is considered the traditional family that capitalism depends upon. For any success, it does have. When the priorities of property are put ahead of those that are best for the people, a potential environment for control and abuse emerges. emerges. One that is conducive to fomenting all levels of the worst parts of capitalism, from patriarchy to racism to white supremacy and beyond. Here to help us imagine a world of love and care instead of hate and competition. M.E. O'Brien is author of Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. Welcome to This is Hell, M.E. 
Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for being on the show. I wanted to start with this uh, thing that you mentioned at the beginning of your introduction, uh, something that took place in Oaxaca. You write that in June 2006, 3,000 police officers attacked a teacher's protest in the Mexican city of Oaxaca. The teachers had been on strike for a month, occupying the central square of the city. In the aftermath of the confrontation, hundreds of social movement organizations gathered to form the Assembly of uh, the Popular Assembly of the People of Oaxaca, an organization that became the central coordinating body of hundreds of protests and occupations over the coming seven months. In August of that year, just a couple of months later, uh, insurgent women seized control of multiple radio stations, going on to use them as communications hubs for the movement. At the end of one radio broadcast of an occupied station, the newscaster concluded, transmitting from the Oaxaca Commune. Insurgents took up the name, referencing the Paris Commune of 1871. So, I mean, these communes not only arose in the 19th century, but in the early 21st century. How important is that history and knowledge that it had been done in the past to the Oaxaca movement? How important is it for any movement to have awareness uh, that what seems like is the improbable, if not the impossible, has in fact happened before and therefore it can happen again? How important is it to know these kinds of transformations have happened in the past? Um, yeah, uh, great question. So I, I talk about the Oaxaca Commune uh, in 2006, uh, both as an example of mass working class protest and collective social movement, uh, and particularly for the examples in it, like there are in many mass working class movements of what I call insurgent social reproduction. So these are examples of, uh, in this case, women protesters engaging in the activities that they might do isolated in their homes and their families, but doing it as part of collectively reproducing the movement as a whole. So people cooking, hanging out together, sharing stories, transmitting messages and coffee, uh, taking care of children all done in this case on the barricades. So these are barricades set up in Oaxaca to try to stop nightly terror attacks by the military, by police and by the paramilitary forces uh, that were mobilized to, to harm insurgents, to harm working class protesters. And so these barricades became uh, became moments of women in the protests, indigenous women in this case, moving beyond the confines of their family and beginning to reproduce uh, the protests through their collective activities of cooking and caring for each other. So I, I, when people hear the word commune, they often think about isolated rural communities living together, perhaps a little poultish, and uh, in, in the case of the Paris Commune and the Oaxaca Commune, it, the word refers to a massive urban mobilization uh, of a protest movement that takes over a city, establishes new democratic governing institutions, and creates the basis of a new way of life as a means of sustaining a protest and fighting against, in this case, the forces of capital and state violence and anti-Indigenous and anti-worker violence. So why is moving beyond, why is expanding that kind of care uh, beyond the traditional family structure that we have? Why do you think that is a target for such state violence? Um, yeah, so I, 
we we live our lives so isolated in private families. Our society is really dominated by the private family, and we are all uh, rely, or a vast majority of people in society rely what care we can get. All we often rely on families, and that's such an integral part of capitalist society that the means of survival are either come from market transactions or occasionally state programs or often the private family. And I'm really interested in these moments that people go beyond these dominant uh, moments of capitalist reproduction. Uh, the moments that people care for each other, moments that people reach out beyond their family and figure out how to engage in collective practices for survival and well-being. And I find these in these various protest structures, these moments of mass protest. And I talk about the Oaxaca Commune, I talk about other historical examples. We could look at sit-down strikes or anti-colonial guerrilla warfare or the Occupy protests or uh, the uh, protests against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline and in Standing Rock. These are all examples where you know lots of people come together they try to sustain a protest. They're fighting against the policies of capital, uh, against capitalism and against the state. And in order to do that, they have to create something beyond the private family. They have to create the basis of collective care that that might take the form of a protest kitchen, uh, uh, collective childcare arrangements. And this, these examples I think are really powerful because they show an alternative to the family that is not about a withdrawal of care or reduction of care, but actually about expanding the means of survival outside of the private family. Uh, and these moments of protest have are always quite threatening to elites. I think there's no question that there's a real effort at repressing them, a real effort at crushing the basis of sustained protest. And the example of the Oaxaca Commune you know, that the, the counter-revolution, the question of the Oaxaca commune involved the mobilization of the Mexican state and terrorist paramilitary forces and the capitalist class in Oaxaca and Mexico, but also involved men uh, insisting that their wives come back home and start cooking for them. That, that the reassertion of the family was a component to the counter-revolutionary process there. Do the participants in these kinds of uprisings, if you will, do they have to be prepared for this to happen? Do they have to be trained for this to happen? Do they have to have a, a plan laid out? Or is this all very much an ad-libbed situation where people just react at the moment to what is needed? Is this something that people must train for for years and then have a written out plan? Or is this something that spontaneously happens and you just have to see where the revolution will take you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, recently the George Floyd rebellion happened in the United States was the biggest mobilization in the country's history. 26 million people marched in the street. There were the uh, National Guard was mobilized to um, stop riots and nightly protests in, in a couple hundred cities. 14,000 people were arrested. And remarkably, nobody planned, right, that there have been uh, organizing and movements against police brutality for decades. There are many, many hundreds of organizations in the United States that would really love to be able to kick off a protest of this scale. 
But one of the remarkable things about mass protest movements is they completely outstrip any organizer's plan that that we I've worked as an organizer for a long time and we put in a lot of effort at building a campaign, at planning a protest, to getting something off the ground. And one of the striking things that happens periodically is protest movements kick off that are uh, vastly larger than anything anyone could have planned. Um, and how extraordinary that is. I think that's that's such a tremendous source of hope and potential social change and potential dynamism. And it calls on a certain kind of humility on the part of organizers of recognizing that the forces that create the basis of movements are far, far bigger than us. And frankly, when large numbers of working class people come together in uh, protest or mobilization, they um, have to become leaders themselves in the process of the struggle. And many, many important things about how protests need to proceed can't be based on an already determined script, an already determined plan, can't be based on trying to execute you know, some, some historical program put out by, by a political organization, but instead emerge as concrete solutions to the problems that we face in our day-to-day -day lives and the problems faced in trying to keep a protest going. Uh, and I think many, many important strategic innovations in each movement come about through large numbers of people confronting a situation and trying to figure it out together on the spot. So two examples of this, one in the George Floyd protest, the moment that uh, large numbers of teenagers, working class people led by black young people took the highways and blocked freeways was a very early tactic in Black Lives Matter in the George Floyd rebellion and ended up having a really major impact on the disruptive power of the protests. And then you, we mentioned the Paris Commune at the beginning, Karl Marx had been involved in militant movements throughout his life in the 19th century and had been writing and theorizing and was obviously a really central figure in the workers' movement in Europe at the time. And the Paris Commune completely blew his mind. When workers took over Paris in 1871, uh, Marx said it was the first example ever of a working class anti-capitalist government emerging. And it transformed his thinking about how social movements actually could unfold and the process of winning uh, a liberated society after capitalism, that it, was, that it was working class people in the streets day after day, arguing about what should be done, trying to innovate new forms of collective practice of governance and decision making. So I think we see that over and over again throughout history of people coming together and finding solutions in the midst of insurgency, of mass protests that could not easily have been imagined or planned ahead of time. And importantly, this is how I think about family abolition. So people often, family abolition has had a lot of meanings historically. I go through a lot of different meanings that it has had for uh, moments that protests, that working class movements, revolutionary movements have tried to go beyond the private family as a constraint on society and human freedom and the proceed, uh, the moving ahead of struggle. Um, but then ultimately, I don't think family abolition is a program or a blueprint that people need to try to implement in their lives following, you know, some study of my book. 
that it's an actual process that unfolds whenever large numbers of people enter and struggle together, whenever there's a sustained disruption to the rhythms of work and capitalist society, the family abolition is something that necessarily emerges simultaneously as an unfolding of the protest itself. And as more and more people in the protest begin to take the opportunity to live differently, to love differently, to care for each other differently. And that, that from an organizing perspective, from a theory perspective, I'm really interested in learning from the dynamic of the movements themselves and recognizing in these protests uh, the actual process of pushing against and going beyond the private family and the private household as a necessary part of the struggle unfolding, whether or not people necessarily see it that way or name it that way or have planned it that way. And as you were pointing out earlier, the counter-revolution that happened, as you write, the reassertion of the family as a system of private male-dominated households, that contributed to the defeat of the Oaxaca commune, for instance. Now, you write that the women could not act as both uh, frontline militants and obedient wives. So it sounds like the family structure, the traditional family structure that we have today, that women are essentially held hostage for free labor. But I do know many families today where the man and woman have if, switched, if you will, from this, those traditional roles. However, those roles are still very much intact within their family structure. If gender roles are reversed, is the family still problematic, possibly because of the roles it demands on the, in this case, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife? Is the, is the problem that women have certain roles and men have certain roles or that those roles exist? Uh, yeah, so I, um, I'm trans and I'm very oriented to trans rights and trans liberation and the well-being of trans people. And certainly the trans movement, you know, has joined in many ways with feminist struggle and women's struggle uh, in recognizing the ways that gender roles can be really harmful and really inimical to human freedom and well-being. And that the centrality, the tremendous importance in transforming gender roles and gender expectations in uh, forming more equitable, more respectful, more facilitating uh, freer lives, better lives, lives that we are able to connect more deeply to our desire and well-being and form authentic relationships with other people. And the family has been a very important site of this struggle that you know, we see trans children working very hard in trying to transform and educate their own parents. Uh, we see uh, couples trying to figure out how to have a more equitable distribution of labor. We see uh, you know, struggles around issues of child abuse and domestic partner violence and intimate partner violence uh, that you know, have played a very, very powerful role in struggles against a kind of normative family form. I, um, I'm interested in both taking these struggles very, very seriously and really appreciating the, all the work that people do in trying to form alternative families, better families, more equitable families, and recognizing that in our society, there's some real constraints on that, that we, um, by private households, 
are not just something that we all choose because we're brainwashed or we can't think of anything better, but we pursue private households, uh, you know, finding a couple, uh, finding a partner to age with, raising children within a private household, because that is a necessary survival strategy in racial capitalism, that in the dynamics of labor markets, of state policy, of what it takes to survive and reproduce yourself in the world, we form private households that we're then really dependent on, that the private household is a major dimension of reproduction. And that we, um, that in our efforts to form alternative families, better families, chosen families, they often end up reproducing many of the problems that we are trying to get away from. That the contradictions of trying to survive in a capitalist society put tremendous pressures on people that end up fragmenting chosen relationships, end up um, reproducing all sorts of forms of gender inequality, class inequality within within chosen family structures, and end up putting a lot of pressure on people um, uh, reimposing, uh, in some cases, traditional gender norms. And so part of my work is both recognizing the power and importance of efforts at transforming how we relate to each other within households, but then also recognizing how the structure of the private household itself is a source of tremendous problems. And trying to imagine trying to draw out, trying to recognize and struggle the possibility of moving beyond the private household as the basis of reproducing society. That, that the whole dynamic of living in isolated ways with one or two adults and having uh, full responsibility for children in this isolated dynamic, that that is the source of a lot of our problems. And, that in trying to think about gender freedom, sexual freedom, trying to think about better relationships with each other, we actually need to start changing the material conditions of what it takes to survive and uh, how the basis of private households in capitalist society. So it would seem that capitalism isn't conducive to what we might consider a happy family life. But as, as you point out in your book, capitalism depends upon that traditional family life. Is there a contradiction there? Or uh, how do you balance the two things of capitalism seemingly not being conducive to a happy family life while capitalism depends upon people not having that happy family life? Yeah. So there's a long, I uh, part two or part one of my book goes into a long history of the family under capitalism and recognizing the changing role of the working class family on the settler colonies of Canada and the United States, in uh, slave plantations in the Caribbean and the United States, in industrial, industrializing cities in Europe. And then thinking about the sort of unfolding of capitalist development and it's changing logic and opportunities of the working class family. And one of the links across these historical eras is over and over again, we see uh, the legitimation and valorization of a very particular kind of family, right? A family modeled after the bourgeois family, after the family of settler colonialism, after the family of plantation owners, a family really based on property based on ownership, based on male domination, based on being able to establish rigid distinctions between the uh, private life and public life uh, on rigid gender roles. And that this sort of idealized family 
than uh, a lot of other people might aspire to, but really not be able to form. And part of the history of the idealized family is then denigrating, attacking, and in some cases, violently obliterating other kinds of care relations. So really extreme examples of this under settler colonialism, the dynamics of separating indigenous people from their children, the residential boarding schools, uh, the dynamics of natal alienation under slavery, separating uh, women from their children um, as that was built into the logic of slavery. And then today we see the family policing system, the apparatus of state violence it's mostly directed against poor black people uh, who, who, you know, rather than giving people the resources they need to actually be able to parent um, lovingly, they instead raid and disrupt people's relationships and put kids into a really abusive foster care system. So that there's a whole, this whole history of valorizing certain kinds of families while, valor, uh, while attacking and persecuting and pathologizing and disrupting other kinds of care relations. So that's a, that's a whole history that I think is really important to trace, really important to unfold. And one of the processes, one of the historical moments that I'm interested in is at the end of the 19th century when it became possible for a section of the working class, more stable, more white, to model their own family lives after the capitalist class. And so this was the creation of what we might call the middle class, the respectable working class, the development of housewives as a, the family wage, as something that a section of the working class was able to achieve. And achieve, you know, a great benefit in terms of reducing infant mortality, increasing health outcomes, creating the basis of a stable life, but also at a cost of, of severing the working class movement between respectable workers on the one hand and the poor queer people, black people, indigenous people on the other that were really expelled or excluded from what became like respectable socialist politics. And so that's a history I'm really interested in, but it's a history that can be hard to hold on to because since the 1970s, it's effectively become impossible for any working class people to sustain a household on a single wage earner. That the overall conditions of working class life have really deteriorated, increasing precarity, stagnating wages, a lot of difficulty that people are facing that has meant that there's no longer really a significant section of the working class that's able to sustain this idealized life. So that's that's history I'm really interested in, the sort of breaking down of, of a certain kind of conventional family expectations that has involved some expanding freedom for some people. You know, we see a lot more queer couples, a lot more people choosing to marry later or making different kinds of choices around parenting, but then also an intensifying dependence on the private household. That although we, uh, there's more room to develop non-conventional family structures, it's also a lot more difficult to form a stable household and a lot more difficult to figure out how to survive outside of one. Um, yeah, the tension you point to, I, I think it's certainly the case that capitalism has always depended on private families. Uh, but what kind of families it depends on in working class life has actually varied a lot over time. 
and the family is a core mechanism for reproducing the workforce for the next generation. But the capitalism does not actually depend on very many people being able to access the idealized family life, uh, the normative family life that it that is presented in media or romanticized all over, that actually that can be something that only a, a very small number of people can achieve. And that, uh, yeah, capitalism doesn't really care if we're able to form the households and valorizes. So the idea that we have of the traditional family is based on a family of privilege, is based on a family that has access to a lot of resources. And then when families are not wealthy and they don't live up to those standards, they're punished by society. They're punished by politicians and politicians hold that traditional family above all else. You were mentioning Indian boarding schools. My niece lives across the street from what was uh, a so-called Indian boarding school. And when people do have... And they have of late have had a uh, increased awareness about the brutality, the cruelty, the uh, sexual abuse that happened in these Indian boarding schools. But when we hear the story of why uh, indigenous people are taken away to these schools, it's often framed as they're being taught whiteness, they're being taught Christianity. But not, I've never heard them say they're trying to change the family structure. Is family, to a certain extent, above criticism within the debate and dialogue that we have right now over the social issues that have not only plagued us now, but have plagued people like the indigenous in the past? Is the family structure something that is not mentioned because it is above criticism and analysis? Yeah, I think there's a very, very pervasive, very deep set romanticization of the family that across the political spectrum, including huge sections of the left and progressivism, that we, that, you know, one, obviously many, many people value their families and care about their families a lot. And two, many people, nearly everyone depends on family relations to varying extent uh, as part of our material survival. And so that, but that that the romanticization of family really goes beyond this. That that the family as an institution, as a social practice, as a way of organizing society, that it's a limit to human to our imagination. That we don't allow ourselves to think beyond it or imagine it. And part of what the implications of that is, then we retroactively ascribe uh, to all sorts of different strategies of survival and care something that more closely resembles the, the nuclear household, the private family. And so one example, you know, we, we were talking about Indian boarding schools. There's been a lot in the news the last few years as they dug up these mass graves at uh, residential schools in Canada and the United States. And it's very clear these were instruments of mass torture, sexual abuse and tremendous violence. Um, almost simultaneously with the Indian boarding schools is the history of allotments so the U.S. Uh, seized and redistributed res reservation land to allocating it to male-dominated nuclear families of indigenous people. And so this was an active effort at destroying the more collective, expansive governance and relationship to land that characterized indigenous life to break the political power of the reservations and to force indigenous families into a property relation 
based on individual family ownership of land in order to allow for selling to white people, for the breakdown of the collective life of indigenous societies. And so that, that you know, we, uh, there is both this violent genocidal effort at separating parents and children simultaneously with an effort at dividing up what were collectively owned, collectively managed uh, communities into private family oriented plots. So the family, like indigenous people were both excluded from the family in this very particular way of uh, people being separated from their children and the genocide and violence of that, but also that the family was a key component to anti-Indigenous genocide and efforts at destroying Indigenous society and to force people into white relationships of property and family. We are speaking with M.E. O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. Find out more about M.E. at GenderHorizon.com. Become a patron of M.E. O'Brien on Patreon at Patreon.com slash M.E. O'Brien. O'Brien is spelled with an E, O-B-R-I-E-N. Do we fear family abolition because of the poor state of our social services, because our family is now our safety net, our lifeboat, is our dependence increasingly being put on the traditional family structure because the safety net is collapsing under privatization and neoliberalism? Is the family becoming more important at a time when we need to transform the family? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, people, you know, people have a lot of charged feelings about the concept of family abolition and they imagine the left trying to invade their lives and take their families away. Uh, And given how hard it is to survive in the world and how much we might depend on our families in that process, that's that's an understandable fear, but it's a misunderstanding of family abolition as a politics, as a vision, and the long and rich history of people critiquing the family. That, That the need is not to take away people's families, uh, although there are, are plenty of people that want to get out of their households and want to have alternatives, but to expand the supports available, to expand the means available for people to be able to make freer choices about the kinds of lives that they lead. So, you know, in thinking about uh, on a reform level, that means the expansion of all the resources that we so often depend on in our families, uh, affordable housing, healthcare, uh, education, food, that these should be much more widely and freely available, uh, that we, that it's grossly unjust, that our material conditions, our means of survival, our means of human flourishing are dependent on who we happen to be related to and who we happen to be having sex with and who we happen to choose to live with. Uh, And then thinking about revolutionary struggle, thinking about going beyond capitalist society, you know, there's a long history of anti-capitalists talking about the transformation of the state, of collective practices of governance, the transformation of our workplaces and the organization of the economy, and really recognizing that a broader process of fighting against capitalist society is necessarily going to also transform our private lives, transform how we live together, how we love together, and appreciating and recognizing throughout history and struggles today 
how people are already struggling to go beyond the private family and how that's really about expanding access to care, expanding the kind of love and support that we depend on for families and making that much more widely and unconditionally available in society at large. And you mentioned that human life depends on care. We are all inescapably interdependent. Is the family denial of that interdependence and driven by a desire to be able to care for yourself without the help of others? Is this at the core of things like the self-made myth? It, it, is the family a denial of a denialism based on that interdependence that we don't need anybody else? Yeah, so there's both a fantasy that we could live individually in the world, right? So that many people uh, today are more and more cut off from, um, uh, are unable or interested in forming family lives. But then also the family itself, there's this whole illusion that it's able to be self-sustaining, self-reproducing. And uh, COVID-19 was a really stark example of how limited this was, that as broader supports became less available to people, as the sort of public education, being able to go out, being able to interact more widely in the world, that it became very clear very quickly that trying to survive as a private family in isolation was effectively impossible that even private families today depend on a huge infrastructure of social services, of um, uh, services that you might buy on the market, of support staff of all different sorts, that we are all profoundly interdependent with each other and frankly, profoundly interdependent on a global scale and that we need social forms that reflect that interdependence, that appreciate it, and begin to think about how to relate to it justly with, with um, in ways that take seriously the well-being of everybody involved. And that the private family is a, is a fantasy, right? We imagine that our households can survive on their own, but they really can. We depend on a much broader society and we need a politics that reflects that each of our survivals is interdependent with each other. And you point out that there is no firm conceptual line separating care labor from other forms of labor because all forms of labor in society are, as you've been pointing out, interdependent on each other. So what keeps us from recognizing that all labor is independent on, interdependent on each other? Are we, are we brainwashed? Is it the constant propaganda that we're being uh, told about the greatness and the sanctity of family? What, what keeps us from recognizing that we are all independent upon each other because do we want to be in that state of denialism? Yeah, so I, I think a key part of capitalist society is a divide, a uh, separation between the personal dependency that we have in the family, the personal relationships of dependency, and the impersonal relationships of market transactions. So we don't know the people who make our clothes. We don't know the people who build our homes. We don't know the people who maintain the infrastructure of water and electricity, right? These are either done by government programs or they're done by impersonal market transactions. And we, in our minds, 
we experience the love and care within the family or the violence and abuse and domination within the family, whatever it is, as a personal relationship of dependency. And then we go out into the world and buy products that we need, get the resources and infrastructure and support that we need in these impersonal market relationships. And that that divide really uh, shapes how we think about politics. It really shapes how we navigate struggles and part of, or how we navigate surviving in the world. And I think part of working class struggle, part of mass protest is beginning to break that down, is beginning to have solidarity with workers across industries, beginning to recognize the links of interdependency that tie us together materially, and that uh, that can both happen during strikes or periods of disruptions and happen as people begin to try to form other sorts of connections and support. So thinking about uh, the grocery stores started emptying out in New York City during COVID in many working class neighborhoods. So it was very hard to get groceries and people putting together strategies for trying to figure out how to get their neighbors food uh, that people uh, that many people were biking all over New York, figuring out food, reaching out to farmers, to CSAs, trying to figure out how to form personal relationships that bridged this, uh, the breakdowns of market transactions. And then also going beyond the, this sort of narrow space of the private family as the sole uh, place that we really take seriously our personal relationships. And that one of the things that happens in struggles is be, people would begin to depend on each other much more broadly. And you also mentioned reconciliation. You say that it's absolutely necessary for, as you point out, the beloved community, which is a phrase that you take from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, is a deliberate intention, a guiding principle that informs nonviolent action. For nonviolence, the intent is always to create the be- beloved community. Its immediate form is reconciliation. There is another element that must be present in our struggle, King writes, that then makes our resistance and nonviolence truly meaningful. That element is reconciliation. Why is reconciliation so necessary? How difficult is it, considering there are many who have no interest in reconciling differences? Um, I, I turned to King at the end in talking about beloved community and as well a concept from Marx and Marxism of Gemeinweisen, uh, uh, translated as community. And both really interest me because they are not, the way that we think about community right now is something that already exists, something that's easily at hand. We, uh, you know, might talk about the LGBT community or might, there are all sorts of ideas of community as this already existing group of people that we can count on in some way. And that actually, I think when we talk about community, we're talking about something that we might desire, that we might imagine, that we might yearn for, but mostly we're talking about something that doesn't actually fully exist that communities are under racial capitalism are really precarious. They're very difficult to hold together. They're very difficult to sustain. And they really by and large don't meet the needs of what we imagine out of them. Um, And the community is instead thinking about community as something to be discovered, something to be created and something that has to emerge over the course of struggle. So reconciliation is a, 
is a way of imagining overcoming of the kind of violence and separation that characterize our world and beginning to try to think about what it means to form relationships of real solidarity and care expansively across society. And that could take the form of new social institutions and forms of struggle. Uh, and that, that that is a necessary process for trying to imagine the emergence, the discovery, the building of communities that could really be spaces of genuine care. So one of the, uh, just something that I'd been thinking about a lot, and then you bring, bring it up in your writing, you write that even the most loathsome, violent, and harmful person still needs a place to sleep under humane conditions. But in a different sense, this model of socialism completely misses an essential element of a just society, that we have the chance to grow to love each other, to grow to be loved, to express and act on that love in rich, consensual ways, to use that love to fulfill and enrich our lives. A free society is one built on mutual care. However, within liberalism, there is what seems to be an obsession with means testing and being against and well opposed to universalism. What happens to care when it is means tested and not universal? Why do liberals oppose that kind of universalism? So uh, I, I'm bridging two related ideas that you're engaging in there. One is that the basic means of survival should be fundamental universal human rights. That the idea that anyone should be without a place to live, without the food that they need, without healthcare is grossly inhumane, is really grossly unjust. And that our capitalist society restricts what we need to survive and uh, and as a means of social control, as a means of disciplining people's behavior, as a means of forcing people into work that they don't want to do, that isn't helpful to them, that isn't helpful to other people. Uh, so that making the means of survival universal is a fundamental ethical commitment, widely shared by socialists, I think, very, very correctly. Uh, what, what the family abolitionist piece adds to that is one recognizing that if these things are widely and universally available, people might make really different choices about how to organize their interpersonal lives. People, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of debate about whether universal basic income, for example, undermines family life, leads to divorces or whatnot. And, you know, there's, there's some good a debate between socialists and others about uh, does it actually increase divorce rates? But a family abolitionist perspective is recognizing that actually people having the means of support outside the family and choosing to opt out of a relationship that doesn't feel good to them or choosing not to marry is really legitimate and should be respected, should be supported. The idea that welfare benefits might lead to uh, reduction of marriage is not something that we should shirk from or be afraid of, that actually uh, part of the advantage of expanding access to care is that people could make very different kinds of decisions about how to organize their private lives. And that that's something that we should embrace as a source of freedom and a source of well-being. But there's a more difficult point there that I think we it's harder for us to imagine which is the kind of care and love and support that we rely on for families, you know, of like the care for a newborn kid, the care of when we're aging, the care when we're sick, the care when we're dying, that these are forms of care that we should also have beyond just housing and healthcare and food, the basic material necessities of life, that we also 
everyone needs um, forms of interpersonal care, love, and support, and figuring out the kinds of social practices that could help foster that, that could help help our society be able to care for each other beyond just counting on private payments to do it. Uh, and that requires thinking beyond the practices of the state and the family and the market as we currently imagine. You uh, just a couple more questions for you, M.E. Uh, you mentioned not only a collective horizon, but you also mentioned the self-realization of each individual on that horizon. So is the horizon one that is both collective and individual? How can it be both? Because, you know, we're constantly being told competition and cooperation are in competition with each other. Uh, I, I Yes, I think just fundamentally, human our well-being, our human flourishing depends on both being able to care for each other, being able to support each other, being able to form the collective practices of interdependence that provide the support that we all need, and taking each person's own unfolding process, unfolding desire, and discovery of their own well-being very seriously. Uh, a touchstone for me for this is thinking about trans freedom and trans well-being, that it is a, that for many, many people discovering their own gender identities when it doesn't match other people's expectations can be a very complex and very rich personal process of self-discovery and self-exploration that can have a whole dimension that's private, that needs to be protected against other people's expectations allowing someone to discover their own desire and discover what works for them. But that, in order to do that, you need the support, the safety net, the, the system of um, care around you to know that if you are exploring your gender in a new way, that doesn't mean you're going to end up homeless. That doesn't mean you will end up isolated and unloved. That doesn't mean you're going to be cut off from the healthcare uh, and education that you need that these things are need to be interconnected, that both sort of one's individual flourishing, one's individual exploration and desire and well-being, and our collective interdependence and our collective care. This has been a fascinating conversation, but I still have one last question for you, M.E. We have been speaking with M.E. O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the communizing of care. Find out more about M.E. at GenderHorizon.com. Follow her on Twitter at GenderHorizon and become a Patreon patron of M.E. O'Brien at Patreon.com slash M.E. O'Brien. That's M-E-O-B-R-I-E-N. One last question, and we promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that family abolition is the recognition that no human being should ever own or entirely dominate another person, even children. No individual should have the means to coerce intimacy or labor from another as current property relations enable. Family abolition is the destruction of private households as systems of accumulating power and property at the cost of others' well-being. Are those who make that kind of argument, are, 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 are they correct that the family is the basis of an orderly society 
But our disorderly society is a reflection of that disorderly traditional family. Is our society dis- disorderly for the same reason our families are? Is that the key to all of the social issues that we face today? Uh, I'm afraid I didn't quite follow your question. Uh, I the, the, yeah. the idea that if so, if the family is supposed to be orderly in this trend and this traditional way, right. and then that is going to be reflected in society, is our disorderly society a reflection of that disorderly family? Is that the problem that we should be addressing? Because that is the na- not the nature, but that is the essence of our disorderly society. The fascist fantasy, and this is shared by people of other political persuasions, is that the the competition of capitalism is counterweighted by the stability of the family. That we can impose rigid gender norms, we can impose rigid sexual expectations, we can teach people to be ethical, disciplined people solely within the private family within the traditional family. And that this is the counterweight to the chaos of, of capitalist competition and private private firms and private property. Um, and that, that this is that there's an there's a point here that these two logics complement each other, that the normative family and private property depend on each other in a variety of ways. And I think we can do better, that we can imagine beyond both that actually that that uh, normative family has never really existed in the way that we imagine it. It's always depended on excluding lots of other people from being able to live that way, that the vast majority of people live in very, very different kinds of arrangements and very different ways of organizing our lives. And that we need a politics that embraces that, that takes that very seriously, that recognizes the richness of how people actually care for each other now, that fights for public policies and economic reforms, that um, increase people's capacity to live outside of uh, the normative family, and that uh, help protect people and help overcome the violence of capitalism. That that what we need to survive should not depend either on who we love or on our uh, on our ability to convince an employer that our work is profitable, that we can do better and we have to do better. M.E., I cannot thank you enough for being on today's show. M.E. is also the author of last year's speculative novel, Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. We've been speaking with Emmy today about family abolition, capitalism, and the communizing of care. Again, you can become a Patreon patron of Emmy O'Brien at patreon.com slash Emmy O'Brien, O-B-R-I-E-N. Thank you so much for being on our show. This Thank is you, a Charlie. fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Take care. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because, come on, seriously, where are you going to hear that kind of in-depth conversation on family abolition, which is really family transformation? If you enjoyed our conversation with Emmy O'Brien, show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing nearly 27 years of content that you cannot get anywhere else giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else, and providing that content again to you for free since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can get right now by just going to thisishell.com. They're all right there. 
Show your appreciation for all that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. You also know this is not the media because name another media outlet, another radio show, another live stream, another podcast that actually throws a party for listeners every freaking year when there isn't a pandemic raging. The pandemic is still continuing, but we're not in the midst of the surges we were earlier in this decade. Join us for the upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art opening of This Is Art this Saturday, July 22nd, beginning when doors open at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, between Oakley and Bell. Meet past guests, see old friends, and make new ones. Join with others who listen to the show uh, as we celebrate yet another year on air. There will also be live music, good food, and a raffle of amazing This Is Hell-related gifts. We'll also have brand new This Is Hell swag that will be available. Following Seb and the past inside the present, we'll be sharing this year's musical lineup as well. This is also your opportunity to meet Mel the Barcat, although we can't promise anything as Mel is a very cool cat, so like all cool cats, he tends to keep a low profile at parties. Cat, what is this week's question from Mel, and how are our listeners responding on Patreon? Um, this week's question from Hell is... What's the most newsworthy thing that will happen at the This Is Hell anniversary party? I'm hoping nothing. <laughs> that would be really good. That would be great. <laughs> uh, we've got about five responses from Patreon. Uh, Ronald A. writes, Barack Obama will stop by for a beer. Erica XE writes, we will finally learn what really happened to Alex Jerry. (laughs) What did happen to him anyway? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Old Grouch responds, as Dorchin hugs Chuck, Chuck will fart and Red Face declare it's a surgeon recommended hangover cure. (laughs) (laughs) That's disgusting. Gross. Uh, Riley J says, a bunch of doomers who know way too much about COVID will meet en masse and probably share joints. (laughs) <laughs> All right. I, I think that might happen, too. And, uh, Riley, I know that you'll be here. He's going to be coming down from Milwaukee. Looking forward to seeing him again. Awesome. Any more? Uh, yeah, one more. Essential rights. That classified. <laughs> <laughs> so we are finally back on Patreon after a couple weeks of technical issues getting the podcast up. This is how returned with our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to again at patreon.com slash this is hell. Not only do you get access to a bonus show every week on Patreon, you also get access to a special code word that gives you a discount on all of our This Is Hell merch at thisishell.com when you click on support. On top of that, by becoming a Patreon patron of This Is Hell, you get early access to every week's question from hell. And Patreon patrons can ask me a question from hell as well. A question from hell I have never heard or read before will asks it exclusively during our Patreon podcast again at patreon.com slash this is hell. Each week on the bonus Patreon podcast, I deliver a monologue you cannot hear anywhere else, and we play a timely interview from our archives that is not available anywhere else but Patreon. For instance, last week, we played our first interview with the late, great Daniel Ellsberg when he appeared on the show back in the year 2000. This was prior to 9-11, and when you realize that and keep that in mind, Daniel sounds pretty freaking prescient. Also, on the most recent Patreon podcast, there's a lot of talk about hate lately, including in our 
talk today with Emmy O'Brien. But what if all that hate is misguided anger, misguided purposely by those who have wealth and power and benefit from that hatred? What if their hate-filled culture wars are a sleight of hand to keep us distracted from who is playing a trick on all of us? But the only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a This Is Hell Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to Matthew C. for upgrading his Patreon subscription. Thanks to our newest subscribers, Paul T., Jack B., and Katie S. Thanks, Matthew, Paul, Jack, and Katie. Coming up, the past inside the present with historian Sebastian Vupper. Kat will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, let's share the ones on Discord when we come back. And we'll be telling you what's happening the rest of this week here on This Is Hell. The future ain't what it used to be, and neither is our past. This is Hell. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. So, since I will be out of town for the next two weeks, I figured it wouldn't make too much sense to start a new series now. I promised something that goes into some more detail of history of non-heteronormative sexualities, and I'll get back to that, promised. Uh, Not today, though. Today, I wanted to wax philosophically about this, that, and the other thing. Specifically, I wanted to muse a little bit about the value of history education. Why do we teach kids history? First and foremost, we should define what we even mean by that. There is a difference between teaching students about what happened in the past and teaching students history, which may seem a little paradoxical because most people would think that both are one and the same. But history as a subject matter isn't just about what happened, when, where, and who was involved and why. Sure, that's something a practitioner of history will eventually arrive at, but Teaching history should mean relating to students how to arrive at that point and what to look out for when exploring the past. Ideally, teaching students how to explore the past and how to arrive at conclusions about what happened would also give them tools necessary to interrogate the present. So, a history education should have two components. First, teach students about the past, and second, teach students ways and tools to interrogate things that tell us about what happened in the past. We should not teach students history with the intent of making them feel good about themselves or the group that they happen to have been born into. That has nothing to do with a history education. The historic record exists outside of any notions of feelings or morality. It just is. It just exists. As the cool kids philosopher said so sagely, the historic record does not care about anyone's feelings, to paraphrase paraphrase that that saying so an education in history that sets out to further pride and feeling good about whatever thing people belong to essentially fails at being well a history education it fails to instill critical thinking skills but rather asks students to blindly accept that yes we are the greatest and anyone who claims things are different just hasn't been paying attention now you could say that by that metric, a history education that set, sets out to make students feel the opposite, that sets out to make students feel ashamed of who they are or about what group they were born into, also fails. And that would actually be true. And such curricula actually exist or existed, well, I mean, some pretty much still around, I guess, um, but not in the way that most people decrying critical histories think they do. 
No history teacher today, at least no history teacher worth their salt, neither at high school nor college level, sets out to make white American kids feel ashamed of being, well, white American kids. No history teacher approaches history education with that intention. There were, however, histories in the past, and maybe histories taught at like Bob Jones University or something, that did this. German history books starting, uh, well, German history books up to circa 1945, for example, would talk about the lasting corrosive influence of Jewish people on the German body politic. American-produced histories of the same era would do similar things to the history of African-Americans, and a lot of history books across the Western world would talk pretty badly about anyone who wasn't from the Western world. I, for example, have recently learned that my grandfather was involved in the construction of the Siegfried Line during the war. I do not exactly know what his role was. I do not know if he had anything to do personally with the forced labor of concentration camp inmates that were deployed there. I have to, however, assume he did because it is more likely than not that that happened. I never met the man. He died before I was born. My mother, of course, speaks very highly of him, and I'm sure he was a nice person, and yet he was involved in the Nazi war machine. Knowing this gives me a sense of where in history I personally am located, and it tells me what I need to take responsibility for. And does knowing this make me feel bad? Well, sure, but then I always knew this was a thing. And I think this is the difference between American views on their own history and German views on ours. American civil religion demands that there be no blemishes on the history of the nation. Sure, mistakes were made in the past, but those were different times. People did not know any better. Well, they actually did, but that's another story. And the end justifies the means because, well, a few million African Americans and Native Americans had to die, but the outcome of their regrettable sacrifice was the greatest, freest country the world has ever known, and so it was all worth it. And then once the kids who have been taught this drivel enter college and learn that actually this is all bupkis and a lot more complicated, and then they suddenly have to confront the fact that, yes, your their ancestors too did awful things and were not the bootstrap-pulling, rugged individual heroes your high school history teachers made them out to be. In German history, you don't get that disconnect because German school children learn from a young age that, well, yes, mistakes were made, but these mistakes were rather large and did not amount to anything good at all in the end and out of this sober reckoning with the past comes a population at least in germany that is better prepared to be critical of those in power in the present when they run into the danger of repeating atrocities well that are similar to those that have been committed by people in power in the past the problem that many, especially on the American right, have with history that is critical of the past instead of celebratory comes from the notion that these people feel, for lack of a better word, triggered by the assertion that their past was in fact not as glorious as they keep making it out to be. But also this idea that historians are somehow out to get them to trigger their children comes from their own desire to constantly, you know, trigger the libs and is in so many ways nothing but projection. But what if we make feel kids sad, feel but what if we make feel kids feel sad for what they are? Well, that can happen. But as I said, that is not, or at least should not be the intended outcome of a history education. One's own history should not be seen as the glorious past of our magnificent present. The past of pretty much every single nation in the world is full of people who did awful things. 
And this is where things become, or where things need to become nuanced. There is difference between feeling bad for where you come from and accepting that not everything your ancestors did was great. Should a student feel personally bad for the things that their ancestors did? That's basically up to the student. If learning that your ancestors enslaved some people and supported the wholesale slaughter of others, well, that first of all is not your individual personal problem. That is not something you did. But if you still benefit from these actions and if there are still people around today that suffer from the after effects of these actions, well, then you might want to reflect on that and maybe take responsibility and take action in the present to mitigate the ongoing effects of those past atrocities. History is in a lot of ways a study of how things that people do change over time. And at the same time, this is true for how we do and write and conceive of our own history. And while historians as a profession have always strived for such noble things as neutrality, for a long time, that just did not happen, especially when it came to histories of non-white people written by white people, or whenever non-white people and white people interacted. When white, quote-unquote, explorers encountered, quote-unquote, savages and completely misread what these non-white people were doing and then ended up dead, or when they then just turned around and killed all of the non-white folks because they were in, in the way or just did not pay due deference, or just the ages-long perpetuation of the myths of cultural superiority of European peoples, all of those things used to be in ostensibly neutral history textbooks. Indigenous Americans, well, they were savages who needed to be saved. Indigenous Africans, well, they actually ended up being better off because of the civilizing influence enacted on them once they were enslaved. Polynesians, again, savages that failed to build great civilizations like the, the Europeans did and just bobbed around the Pacific aimlessly. And they were all ungrateful when the white people tried saving them from themselves. As we moved on from the histories that were still heavily inflected by ideas of the 19th century, histories that focused on quote-unquote great men and preached Eurocentric supremacy, historians have started to understand a couple of important things about the world and about what neutrality in history really means. For one, everyone, regardless of class, belong, everyone regardless of class belonging has a history. The history of all people should include the history of, well, all people, not just that of the ruling classes. Granted, the history of ruling classes are generally easier to produce since those guys leave behind more stuff. But the history of smaller people is just as, if not more important. And then when, when we look at the histories of people and societies as a whole, we have, for the most part, overcome the antiquated notion that, as some historians put it, moving away from Europe or American civilizations uh, in space means traveling back in time. The whole thing where these people are still living in the Middle Ages or these tribes are still stuck in the Stone Age, you know, or when European explorers discovered these people, they were still living in the state of nature and other such ideas. Those are fundamentally wrong. And because just because a bunch of white people rolled up into their shores bearing firearms while the locals were rocking spares and arrows does not mean that the white people were inherently better. The indigenous people of the world were fine living like that basically until white people in the overwhelming number of cases came along and made their life so much more unnecessarily difficult. People have a hard time accepting that those in the past they are related to did bad things because they think that reflects badly on them today. But what actually reflects badly on people today is knowing that your ancestors wronged others and set up systems to systematically exploit others to their own and then also their descendants' benefit 
and then out of a sense of familial belonging refused to accept that these past things were bad and then to and then also refuse in the present to interrogate and much less to dismantle the systems of exploitation that have been set up in the past because only when we realize that many of our ancestors made the world hell for others can we understand that we today also still live in this hell and then from there, only from there, can we start to take steps, you know, uh, to step out of this. Sebastian, you're going to be gone for a couple of weeks. What are you going to do for yes. your break? Uh, next week, we're we're going to be in Colorado for a family reunion. And then the week after, we're in, uh, I don't know, somewhere in rural Michigan, I think, uh, hanging out with friends of Chloe. Oh, very cool. So wait, uh, you're are you going to Boulder, Colorado by chance? No. Okay, because there's just so many people here. Cat has family in Boulder. Mm. Uh, Will just went to Boulder. Everybody goes yeah. to Boulder. I want to know more about what's <laughs> going on in Boulder. Well, enjoy your time off. Uh, I will be getting in contact with you during this time anyway. I have a couple of things I want to ask you. And sure. uh, Oh, I saw something really amazing that I wanted to share with you real quick. I was flipping stations because I still have a TV. And I stumbled on an old 19s, this is why I have a TV, a 1960s episode of Get Smart. And mm. there is a moment where the, the secret agent, Maxwell Smart, says that the United States needs to give billions of dollars in aid to other countries so those other countries can then not be grateful for that aid. And I just couldn't believe that this weird joke was somehow supposed to be fitting into the storyline in any way. It was like somebody was just like, hey, you know what? I hate the fact that we're giving out foreign aid to other countries and then they're not thanking us for it. So can we make a joke about it? It was really, really weird. And a lot of those TV shows from the 60s are really weird when you try to figure them out through a lens of 21st century. Yeah. Very bizarre stuff. All right. Yeah. So anyway, I will uh, talk to you soon and enjoy your, okay. your time off. Yeah. My, my biggest regret is that, that, that of course, the listener appreciation party is when we leave <laughs> for Colorado. Because I was thinking, well, that might be a good time to come back to Chicago to hang out with the crew and everything. But alas, it's not supposed to be. Anyway. <sighs> Next time, sir. Next time. All right. Talk to you Alrighty. soon. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Cat, uh, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? And do we have any responses on Discord? This week's question from hell is, what's the most newsworthy thing that will happen at Saturday's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party? We have one response on Discord from Kim G, who says that we will learn that Mel is a real-life space cat fighting fascism. Oh, sweet. In reference cool. <laughs> to the card game that we'll be giving out as a raffle prize, Space Cats versus Fascism, which is by the Tessa Collective. Thank you very much, the Tessa Collective, for donating that to the raffle. Cat, what's Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? This week, Jeff quotes Chuck quoting Jeff and expounds, of course. <laughs> and Kat, who are this week's upcoming guests here on This Is Hell? Returning to This Is Hell will be writer, ethnographer, and human rights activist Dr. Michael Goldwartowski, who will be on to talk about his Tom Dispatch article, American Inquisition, Field Notes from the Front Lines of the Government's War on the Left. And also returning to This Is Hell, Brazil correspondent Bryant Meyer, who has launched a new substack called Delinking Brazil. His first post at the site is titled, 
Bolsonaro coalition implodes as tax reform amendment approved. 30-year fight to reform Brazil's Byzantine tax code realized as constitutional amendment passes lower house in crushing defeat for Bolsonaroism. Ismo. Uh, this Saturday's uh, is, again, uh, this Saturday's July 22nd. This is how anniversary and listener appreciation party is taking place at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Beginning at 3 p.m., a party that includes the opening of the This Is Art Art Show and a raffle of amazing This Is Hell-related gifts. Also, as always, it features live music. Here's this year's lineup. The opening act at 4 p.m. will be Joshua Virtue, an up-and-coming voice based out of Chicago whose production is only outclassed by his writing. Their pandemic record, Jackie's House, whose proceeds went to help support their mother, sister, and grandmother, blended wise insights with humorous lyricism and cutting critiques of the capitalist system, went on to be released by Joyful Noise, the record label. Virtue is one of the few special creators whose politics is only strengthened by their creativity, their artfulness, sharpened by the movement. This self-proclaimed rap wizard is not to be missed. Jackie's House got a glowing review in the Chicago Reader when it came out during the pandemic in April, during the beginning of the pandemic, I should say, in April 2020. Joshua will be followed at 7 p.m. by a trio featuring Ishmael Ali on cello, Andrew Scott Young on bass, and Tyler Damon on drums. Ishmael is a dynamic cellist, guitarist, improviser, and composer based out of Chicago. His work centers on exploring sound through improvisation, experimentation, composition, and collaboration, focusing on a wide array of idiomatic approaches in an ever-changing, always-growing list of projects informed by diverse influences. Andrew Scott Young is a bass multi-instrumentalist, composer, improviser, and teacher based out of Chicago. He hosts a monthly uh, performance series called Heavy Air Happy Hour with an emphasis on acoustic small group improvisation. Heavy Air Happy Hour is a monthly series at Cafe Mustache, 2313 North Milwaukee Avenue, centered around strictly acoustic small group free improvisation. Uh, Tyler Damon is a Midwestern American artist who's syncretic approach aims to reveal mercurial impressionistic narratives via drums percussion and free improvisation in addition to solo work tyler has earned recognition for extended duo exhibitions with saxophonist dave rempus and guitarist tashi dorji and at 10 p.m we will be closing the musical performances for the night but the party will continue well into the morning with our final act being nude n-u-d-e but there's an umlaut over the U, so I think that's Nude. Third Coast Review writes this of Nude's debut single, Exquisite, which came out this past April. Third Coast writes, Luke Closey and Ruby Lucinda have been making music together in various uh, permutations since high school, and it shows. Their new two-piece band, Nude, feels like a culmination of their decades-long collaboration delivering a debut single, Exquisite, that is sharp, refined, and focused. Due to their artistic familiarity with one another, their debut single possesses a strongly and intentionally formed identity, nudes uh, tying together of adjacent influences across the alternative rock-pop spectrum into a tight, catchy package, provides for a satisfying and easily repeatable listen. Highlighting the catchiness and pop sensibility of Exquisite, however, is not to imply a lack of depth, the track is multifaceted with tightly composed sections that freely flow into one another, and you can find it easily on YouTube. And remember, 
There is no cover to our party. We hope to see all of you at our This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and the opening of This Is Art happening this Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Thanks to Kat Jarvanen for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>